Fraser, thank you so much for taking the time today. Dr. Bubs, it's awesome to be here with you on this show. Thank you. Well, listen, I'd love to kick things off here by you telling folks a little bit more about your background and your journey into your current uh, position. Well, I'm a naturopathic physician. Uh, I also have a very long experience in naturopathic education. So I graduated from Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in 1997 and was a clinician there and in private practice for uh, quite a few years, uh, having done a residency with Paul Saunders. And uh, over time, I um, found that I also enjoyed uh, teaching in and outside of the clinic and um, became dean there at one point. And then in the last, uh, for the last 15 years, I've been in Illinois in the Chicago area with National University of Health Sciences, where we have a naturopathic medicine program. Incredible. Well, listen, Doc, I'm looking forward to really diving into talking about cardiovascular disease and some of the more novel uh, biomarkers, as, as well as even flushing out the standard you know, panels and interventions that um, you know clients go through and if practitioners are listening in, their clients are experiencing. But you know, if we start with cardiovascular disease, I mean, this is the leading cause of mortality in you know, the U.S., Canada, around the world. And so, you know, to kick off the conversation here, you know, amongst the population, who is at most risk of cardiovascular disease? Well, it's certainly a disease that is more prevalent the older, you know, in the elderly or older population. So uh, anybody over the age of 50 um, anybody over the age of 80, it's very, it's very prevalent. So you're looking, say, in a country like the United States, um, about 500,000 deaths, say, from cardiovascular disease per year. Uh, and it's similar, kind of similar breakdown per population mm -hmm. in other industrialized uh, countries. Um, there's some breakdown uh, by uh, genetically or by ethnicity, you know, allowing for the fact that those are generalizations, mm -hmm. those are lumping people together, but there are, you know, there are ways in which that can be meaningful. So with heart disease, um, Hispanic and non-Hispanic whites tend to be a little higher than other, uh, other groups as, as so described. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, stroke, uh, African Americans, say in my, my context here, mm -hmm. um, and Hispanics somewhat tend to be a little bit higher as well. Um, the thing I'd like to emphasize, though, is these are typically phenomenon that are years in the making. Gotcha. And and when we look at different populations, if we if we explore this a little bit more and you know, again, clients listening in or practitioners listening in, what are some of the risk factors if someone's, you know, in your office or, you know, in their doctor's office around increased risk for cardiovascular disease and some of the modifiable risk factors if we talk about those? Those are the really important things to zero in on. And certainly LDL, which the medical, you know, kind of allopathic or standard medical profession really banks on as their number one target for therapy, that is is an exceedingly important factor uh, just because of the weight, the massive weight of uh, evidence linking uh, LDL levels 
with increased chances of cardiovascular disease. Uh, I have other things to say about that, but it is it is truly a major risk factor. Um, but so is diabetes, and that is a very serious problem. The Centers for Disease Control predicts that by 2040, 2050, one in three U.S. adults will have diabetes. Wow. And that is, you know, incredible to think. We know that um, it's... It's oh, telephonic research, I, I think, or survey research, but about a third of the U.S. population is obese if we take body mass index of 30, uh, which, you know, usually... General population, not a bad marker, right? Yeah, right. You know, there, there's people with high lean muscle mass and great strength that maybe have BMIs higher than the guidelines as such, but... You know, in the 30s, people usually have a problem, and and that's that is going to be the big one. High blood pressure, smoking, mm -hmm. still in 2020. Yeah, for sure, smoking. Um, it's interesting because in the tables of um, or, or or various you know uh, comparative charts about risk, obesity is still considered a minor risk factor, and that is. You know, interesting. That's scientifically interesting. And minor doesn't mean trivial. It just means it's not as tightly or consistently you know, correlated uh, with cardiovascular disease as something like smoking. Um, but it also, you know, points to the fact that there could be differences in people with BMIs of 30. Absolutely. Um, there could be behavioral differences. And so that has always struck me. Uh, it's not a, a reason. <laughs> To be obese, and we see people get, you know, um, their diet and their exercise, their house in order, or the morbidly obese go through bariatric surgery and completely change their metabolism, and then their heart disease risk and their diabetes risk plummets. So it's no, it's no trivial matter, but it's interesting that that one stands aside as maybe not as absolute. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it that? as you mentioned type 2 diabetes being such a strong predictor of, of risk and, and events and you think that would dovetail as well with obesity but there's some nuance there and if maybe we circle back to that standard lipid panel that clients are getting when they go to the doctor and you mentioned ldl and I'd like to jump in there in a minute but let's even start with you know total cholesterol because that was traditionally the marker that's used to assess cardiovascular disease risk you know, we see that half of the patients who experience events actually have, you know, cholesterol levels that are consistent with the guidelines. So, you know, today is, is total cholesterol on its own a reliable predictor of cardiovascular disease? Uh, on its own, I think it's unreliable. Um, I think it's it's like that strange noise that your car makes, <laughs> right? It could nice. be something <laughs> that could be anything. isn't going to cost you a thousand. <laughs> it could be anything, you know. Um, hopefully you've got an honest mechanic. Exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> the uh, but some but sometimes it is so it's unwise to ignore and that's how I see LDL these days that it's it's unwise to ignore it and it's a fascinating area because it seems like the very high LDL levels in people with strong family history and then one or two other risk factors uh, is a harbinger is, is, you know, is, is 
indicating, yeah, in 10 years or 15 years, they're going to have heart disease. But when we get out of that upper strata of risk, when we get out of the, the sicker patients or the patients with more, you know, factors weighing them down health-wise, LDL becomes much more fluid type of projection. And, you know, if you ask any cardiologist about that, and, you know, they're looking at doing, the, you know, in a utilitarian fashion, doing the, the maximum good, mm-hmm. they're going to say, hey, just take the statin and pound that LDL down. It's the LDL, stupid. Yeah, kind of yeah for sure. And, but it's, it's not that simple a story. So it's worth heeding, but by itself, it uh, really fails. As you say, you know, a lot of people with guidelines have within guidelines can still have heart attacks and um, it, it falls short in terms of predicting things, I I believe by itself. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the, uh, the narrative has obviously shifted from total cholesterol to LDL. And as you mentioned, you know, there's still a good weight of evidence showing that the higher levels are going to be predictive of cardiovascular events, but we do get these individuals who will have higher total cholesterol, have higher LDL and all other markers are seemingly in, in good standing order. And I think that's where it gets a little bit, uh, um, you know, confusing, if you will, from a pra- practical standpoint, because if, you know, do we then do, as you mentioned, you know, just hammer down LDL with a medication despite any other risk factors or is, or is there potentially more going on? And this maybe, you know, leads into the conversation around other markers. Um, and before we even talk about markers around inflammation, you know, what about things like, you know, even ApoB, ApoA, you know, some of these markers that I often see not even run before we're, we're giving out medications as well. Should those always be run as well as part of a, uh, a panel if, if someone is indeed going to be potentially medicated? Uh, I, I don't know that always so, some people are so obviously risk, True. high risk. It, it's, it, it's okay to go ahead. Uh, I think it's not run enough. And um, so, for instance, someone who is within guidelines, but they have a family history, instead of making the assumption that, well, hey, we got these numbers looking good, and even though both your parents had heart disease by the time they were 60, you know, you're good according to this population study of 30,000 people, so you're good. And I think those that's a great area for intervention and looking at those, those APOA proteins and lipoprotein A, looking at those heart attack proteins to say, well, it's is a distribution curve of people that are very much, you know, right in the middle of having having those apoproteins proteins as sort of a baseline, kind of a, a a normal, if you will. And there's people on either tail of that curve. Some people are just blessed with great apoproteins proteins that vacuum up wayward cholesterol and take it to the liver, no, no matter what they eat. Mm-hmm. And there's others that you know, are actually doing a lot of the right things, but, uh, and, and even, even if their actual lipid levels or BLDL or other things aren't high, which is kind of a, a certain familial condition people can have, they're, they're, they're getting, um, they're getting more cholesterol deposition in their arteries. It reminds me of a great cartoon in the New Yorker where a doctor's talking to a patient and he's got a lab result and he says, well, it looks like, 40% of your cholesterol is good, 40 is bad, and 20 is undecided. So, <laughs> nice. 
there's a lot of mitigating factor that changes, um, you know, the way I'd put it to a, a person who's not as into this stuff as I am would say, well, there's things that can make that cholesterol more sticky and more of a menace. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, I guess, you know, since atherosclerosis is at the heart of all this and it's an inflammatory condition and disease, it would obviously seem like a good place to start to gather more information around having more biomarkers and data around arterial inflammation and potentially stability of plaques and things like that. And of course, this is where some of these more novel biomarkers that you you know write about and speak about quite quite frequently of inflammation that become more important. And you know, maybe we can start the conversation here around you know C-reactive protein, which is one that's commonly run in, in a, you know in a medical checkup. You know, acute phase protein released by the liver during inflammation, it's playing a unique role in the immune response. Can you talk a bit about CRP and its and its role here in, in, as a marker of inflammation? Yeah, CRP, C-reactive protein, it's very highly, you know, associated or correlated with cardiovascular disease. So although, you know, although it can be high because of other things, like maybe you have a dental abscess and it's causing this reactivity, it is, it is really associated there. So for instance, the higher CRP level patients have been shown to have twice the mortality. If they have a heart attack, they're twice as likely to die. And just in terms of disease progression, CRP is a really good, uh, really good predictor of of someone's possible of someone's possible uh, progression. So, in other words, will somebody uh, find themselves at a heart disease uh, state more quickly? Um, the uh, the uh, placking that might happen um, is more likely, and it is getting some it is getting some attention from internists um, and some cardiologists who order it along with the lipid panel. And I think some of that attention comes from the fact that in some of the larger trials, um, the statins, in particular Vesuvastatin, which people know as Crestor, lowered CRP. And the more it lowered it, the patients that really got the lowering effect had fewer heart attacks um, as a group. So, But what's interesting at the same time is many, many cardiologists and internists don't order it at all. They, they, um, they like to have one target to hammer away at, mm. and and CRP is not it. I mean, it's yeah, it's very interesting what you mentioned there around the statins, and you know, is the effect actually coming more from an anti-inflammatory effect um, rather than a, a lipid lowering effect? Obviously, the LDL function is going to be there, but you know, to what degree? You know, in your opinion, would the statins, the effect on inflammation, be driving a lot of the potential benefits? Oh, I think it's a big. I think it's a big chunk of that. And um, I mean, certainly there's the lipid lowering aspect, but it's 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 like a blunt a blunt force type of inflammation lowering. And you know, in in the kind of work we do with people, there's there's so many other approaches to that. Um, there's so many other approaches to that in ways that you can help someone lower their own inflammatory levels. Uh, there's a third element. Um, there's a third element to the statins, um, it, which is 
uh, plaque physiology, and this is kind of a new line of research in statins, but it seems that statins cause plaques to actually tighten up and calcify a little bit. Hmm. So they, if they're, if they're not too far advanced, they become more of a bump in the road and less at risk of rupturing. So that shriveling up of plaques, not not the point where they completely regress, but they go from being, you know, um, a pothole that's ready to explode to just a bump in the road. That that is probably another part of their uh, value that's just becoming understood. Yeah, I mean that's it's it's fascinating the different mechanisms at play, and if we talk about some other biomarkers that people might be less familiar with around, you know. This is you mentioned inflammation here. If we talk about arterial wall inflammation, you know, lipoprotein associated phospholipase A2, so L little p PLA2. You know, can you talk a little bit about that uh, biomarker? You know, how frequently it's run and, and what it might be telling us. This is telling us how much active inflammation, which includes scavenger cells attacking a plaque, is going on. So it's sometimes you know called the plaque test is not measuring how thick the plaque is it's measuring how stable the plaque is and so this is really important because a plaque that ruptures is going to attract platelets and platelets are the things that help you clot you know i, I it's not serious but i cut my arm um I cut my arm gardening yesterday. My eight-year-old son <laughs> said it was like I got attacked with a, with a katana. Nice. Well, it's not that bad, but fortunately my platelets came into, into the rescue and form a blood clot. So it's usually a good thing. When it happens in you know, the right coronary artery and blocks blood flow, then it becomes a catastrophe. And so the, the uh, plaque test... Uh, LPA2 uh, can show us are those are those plaques um, on, on their road to rupturing because what they are in the middle is dead tissue, cholesterol, some dead white blood cells, and um, which can continue to gather LDL, but what's on the outside is like um, is like a dome um, that's made out of collagen, and eventually it stops looking like the normal lining of the artery that we had when we were all three. Mm -hmm. It just starts to look like scar tissue. So as that scar tissue starts to become parchment thin, it's ripe and it's ready to rupture. And so the plaque test is immensely valuable to know, are you, are you walking around with stable plaques that might follow you till you, you know, you die at 101 having had a great life? Or are you someone that um, has plaques that are ready to rupture? Yeah, obviously, you know, tremendous insight if, if one can uh, get a little bit more information, uh, more, you know, a stronger association with some of these biomarkers like that around, you know, the obviously being able to measure these things with the inflammation and, and plaque vulnerability. And, you know, myeloperoxidase is also something, you know, another biomarker that, that gives us some insight around plaque vulnerability. Can you speak a little bit more about what it's measuring there, and, and does that provide us with more information on top of the LPLA, or is it a, a different type of information we're getting? It is a different type of information. It's it's related. So if you could only pick one of the two, um, they, they'd both they'd both be pretty good at telling you that that things 
that you have a hot spot that there's mm-hmm. active inflammation and that uh, if you think about this plaque growth in terms of velocity that you're at, that you're at a high velocity and um, MPO is basically looking at an enzyme that white blood cells make when they've become interested in the plaque interested in the sense that um, you know chemotractant or ke- chemical markers that attract them are pulling them into the fray and they're essentially behaving as if there's an infection there so they're getting involved with the plaque um, putting out these strong free radical creating enzymes and that inflammation begets more inflammation it becomes what's called a positive feedback loop which we don't really like to see in the body it's it's a you know it's a loop without a control system and so MPO is showing you that those plaques are not not just some elevated inflammation but now are are really actively hot and you're going to you're 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 in you're in the fast lane. When I lived in Toronto, the 401 highway had the collectors <laughs> in the express yeah. lane. Now you're, now you're in the express lane to having those arteries plaqued over. Yeah, and I guess if we add to that metaphor, I mean, when the potholes get that deep and you're traveling that fast, I guess that's where uh, bad things can happen, right? <laughs> that's right. That's where the wheels come off. <laughs> and so, you know, some of these markers, obviously not traditionally run, but would you know provide great insight. And I think, uh, you know, if we continue down this road and talk about, you know, just the peroxidation of lipids. So, you know, F2 isoprostanes, you know, this is a measure of lipid peroxidation and this is due to the metabolism of arachidonic acid. Now, can you talk a little bit about that in terms of insights? Yes, that is, uh, this is one of my favorites. Uh, now these ice, these, these prostanoids are, um, essentially drivers of oxidative stress. And what's fascinating about the F2 series, there, there's two things about them. One is they're not dependent on an enzyme. Enzymes are proteins the body makes uh, to catalyze chemical reactions. We make lots of prostanoid substances in our body. Th- these, these F2 isoprostanes are created when a very common fatty acid in the body called arachidonic acid are, is exposed to a lot of oxidative stress. And the, the other really great thing about the F2 series is that it's specific to the artery. So it's showing us that, you know, the, essentially the byproduct or the, the footprint of a lot of oxidative stress in the artery is occurring. And this is tremendously important, uh, one, to help people with lifestyle education. Um, the other, you know, to show someone that, well, you may, you know, you could go for an angiogram tomorrow and they're going to find that your arteries are all completely clear, but you, you have a lot of oxidative stress going on, which is the beginning of aging. And... Uh, begins to change or transform the lining of the artery into something that it's not supposed to be. And how does, Doc, how does environment impact that story? When we talk about, you know, arachidonic acid and its role in, in building muscle, and if we have a, you know, we talked about body mass index previously, so if we have an individual who has a high amount of lean mass, you know, low body fat percentage, blood glucose controls, you know, terrific, um, you know, aerobic fitness, that type of scenario versus, 
you know, an environment where another individual might be, you know, overweight or obese, you know, unfortunately, the typical, as you mentioned, you know, two thirds of the population being overweight or obese, abdominal circumference, you know, above 38, 40 inches. So, you know, let's say up towards 48 or 50, maybe so significant abdominal adiposity, you know, how does that then start to change how, you know, the expression of some of these, you know, of a marker like that and, and what it might be telling us? Is it the same in each individual? Or would that be more pronounced in a more pro inflammatory milieu in, in a, you know, an, an overweight, obese individual? It, it would, and you, you've hit on a critical aspect here. Uh, one I find fascinating, the, the people, even young asymptomatic, apparently healthy adults that have the highest F2 isoprostane levels and not, not, you know, not ridiculously high, like just the higher 10% of readings. Um, I think it's over 130 picomoles or some tiny, you know, mm-hmm. little measurement like that have a 30 times greater chance of developing metabolic syndrome. Wow. 30 greater times. Wow. So there's something going on there with that, you know, lack of movement, uh, deposition of visceral fat, you know, belly fat, visceral fat as well around the organs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, inflammatory inflammatory loops going on in the body so it's really like like an early warning system to me this particular test and you know later in this conversation we're going to talk a little bit about strategies but you know as you mentioned previously some of these biomarkers when we do have clients who we can see are you know at risk and need to be making some changes but some of the conventional markers which are great for kind of longer term prediction but you know and I'm, I'm thinking a lot of men's health here and dealing with men who are 40s, 50s, 60s who, you know, sort of might be able to convince themselves that they don't need to start making changes because, you know, the, the conventional markers are, are good enough, let's say, to um, to be able to continue with their, you know, their current lifestyle, nutrition, exercise. So, you know, I imagine you, in terms of running some of these biomarkers, this is providing us with that insight to be able to start to to leverage some change, right? Yes, it 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 serves as some something measurable for someone, a wake up call, and something that can be retested to see. Well, hey, I'm eating fewer burnt foods and fewer deep fried foods, and um, you know, giving my body that experience of you know getting my heart rate up and sweating and exercising and you know, eating more plant foods, and look, this 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 measurement went down. I have less, you know, less of this oxidative attack going on uh, that's transforming my arteries into arteries that are going to get really good at collecting LDL. So it's a great educational tool for people, and and you know who doesn't who doesn't get motivated by you know some kind of result they can see. So it's great that way. Hundred percent. Before we dive further into you know maybe some of those strategies, oxidized LDL, you know another biomarker of inflammation and one that we see being run, you know more more commonly in conventional settings. Can you explain to listeners, you know what are we measuring here with with oxidized LDL and and what are some of the associations when levels do get higher with the oxidized LDL? Uh, well, oxidized LDL is. Uh, LDL uh, particle, which is a, a big lump of uh, fatty acids, triglycerides, and certain 
certain proteins, it's it's basically uh, you know a way of moving fats around and cholesterol around the body, mm-hmm. which are important for synthesizing normal tissues. You 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 couldn't live without <laughs> you need, it. You need it, right? <laughs> you need it. You need it to have a brain. You need it to have a spinal cord. You need it to have muscles. Yeah. You know, <laughs> which is you know another aspect of this is to do you really. Do you really want to um, um, drive drive that you know into, into super low levels? But you need it, and so this particle is sort of like the Amazon you know delivery truck of these cholesterol fat molecules, and it has certain proteins on it, and these can get oxidized. So so can the actual fatty acids too. But the the um, you know the the proteins in this particle are uh, you, you know like almost like the delivery information for the order. So they, they, they help the particle interact with tissues where this, this fatty and cholesterol material can get delivered where it's needed and not get stuck somewhere where it isn't needed. Now, when that's oxidized, which can happen in these very inflamed arteries, um, that particle uh, is just more likely to crash into the lining of the artery and essentially insinuate itself into that lining of the artery, which just feeds the whole process because then certain white blood cells come along to try to scavenge it and they just get sucked in and die and you have a plaque, you know, that continues to grow. So, and that is, you know, that is why it's great to see more of that getting ordered by more people in healthcare because, you know, oxidized LDL is far more, dangerous, far more atherogenic uh, than plain old LDL, uh, just as just as there's there's other other parameters of LDL that can make it more of a threat. But it's it's a simple one. It's just showing the LDL got oxidized, which made it, you know, more of a menace, but a very important one. Yeah, I mean when we look at some of the you know, associations around increased levels of oxidized LDL, you know, four times more likely to develop metabolic syndrome. You know, in healthy middle-aged men, high oxidized LDL, again, four times greater risk of developing coronary heart disease. And of course, you know, as you well know, increasing in a stepwise fashion with severity. So, you know, terrific marker to be to be getting some clear information on, on potential risk. And of course, then saying, Okay, well, what are we going to do about this? So when we talk strategies here, you know, diet, movement, lifestyle, what are some of your, you know, fundamentals or pillars or things that you, you know, are saying repeatedly to clients when it's time to to do something about these markers when they are out of balance? Well, I always start with diet and um, this is extremely important in several ways. You know, one is diet is the place where we're going to ingest and absorb, you know, um, ho- hopefully absorb um, the things that are going to build healthy tissue. So our plant-based antioxidants, our vitamin C, our proteins, the other aspects of diet though are really significant too in that, you know, di- diet can modulate inflammation it can work in our favor. So, you know, we've see, we, we see, you know, sort of processed food diets uh, leading to obesity and ramping up inflammation, it would appear. 
and then things like the Mediterranean diet over the long term, um, not doing that. Um, so you've, you've got those two things going on. I, I guess the third thing, and it ties in with inflammation, but uh, it's, it's significant, is, you know, really, really atherogenic uh, aspects. So the, the one I like to pick on a lot, and, you know, I've been telling people for 25 years to go and eat good oils, if we take, you know, vegetable oil that's used in frying operations or even just a lot of the, you know, store-bought, cheapo vegetable oils, mm-hmm. you know, those have been so processed and extracted with solvents and heat-treated, bleached, deodorized. They're, they're more inflammatory. Um, they're more inflammatory than, um, you know, saturated fat for a lot of people. And so getting people on the right diet it helps build their body from the cell up. It certainly, you know, can impact their inflammation and it gets them away from things that are literally killing them. Yeah. I mean, very well said in terms of just that real 30,000 foot view of process versus non-processed. I mean, it's incredible that, you know, North America, Canada, the U S the UK, you know, more than 50% of everything we buy is, is ultra processed food. And, you know the caloric density that brings on board and, and leading into you know higher blood glucose levels and of course things like weight gain so you know in terms of dietary strategies then you know you you mentioned a couple i mean as one of those sort of principles of getting people to lose weight and improve that inflammatory terrain is, is simply weight loss simply achieving a bit of a caloric deficit you know is that something where you know, if your client who, let's say they are overweight or obese, if they're starting to lose weight and you're seeing improvements, do you have a, a preference over different dietary strategies or would that simply be a good first place for people to be moving? No, I, I, I like it in a general way, the Mediterranean diet, not only because of the evidence, but be, because it's very time tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for people that are not as, you know, into, uh, you know, the olive oil and other things like that, or as many Solanaceae products like tomatoes and chilies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's like Scandinavian variant of that if you're more into root vegetables and, you know, and, and that, you know, for people that are doing that and maybe a little less fish, you know, we're steering them toward, you know, grass-raised, grass-finished meats mm-hmm. and things like that or you know, Arctic, wild-caught, I, I worry a bit about the sustainability, but uh, wild-caught fishes that have, you know, the high omega-3s. So I like I like that as a baseline. I've found over time, um, you know, eat, eating is such, it's such an ingrained behavior, even though great changes are possible, um, when, when someone can um, kind of start with some foods that they already know or concepts that they already know, like, well, you know, I, I like pasta and I like, I like, you know, roasted or charred vegetables and I like salad and yeah, I could eat extra virgin olive oil. There's, there's some familiarity there. Um, having said that there's other, you know, other shoes that fit other, other people here. And, um, um, you know, one, one person I'm, I'm advising right now, you know, he's doing um, essentially uh, a form of modified fasting, and he's a very big person, um, you know, 6'2", 
and very big framed guy, but he's lost about 85 pounds just by, you know, doing, um, you know, a ketogenic approach. Mm -hmm. Now he's very robust and got a very big constitution and he's got a lot of reasons to lose the weight, including for his knees and his mobility. Um, that would be too drastic for some people. They, you know, maybe they're working two jobs. They have little kids at home. The, um, the, the, the mood swings and just, just, just the detoxification and doing that is just, it's going to backfire on them. Sometimes you don't really know until you try, but for them, things like a five and two approach where they can eat healthy five days a week and then two days a week, they're sticking to 500 calories, which, which can be pretty interesting if you make it that way, but they're, they're hungry. They're dreaming about pepperoni that night yeah. and everything like that. And, you know, can't wait to get up and have breakfast. But that type of approach as well um, can work. Can work for people. Uh, you know, typically with weight loss, ac activity levels are important. But at some point, the energy balance has to shift, and that means taking less in. Yeah, it is. Like you said, it's amazing that obviously compliance is such a, you know, the best predictor really of a. Of, of of weight loss and so finding that diet that clients do gravitate to or find some enjoyment in is so key and i always find it funny as well when you go to italy the size of the pasta portions is a lot smaller than if i go back to canada or the u.s right so we've something got lost in translation with uh, portion sizes there as well which is uh, important for us to, to reinforce but you talked if i shift gears so you talk movement and of course you know, exercise, you know, how much can exercise move the needle here if we have clients who are at increased risk of cardiovascular disease? Oh, I, I think it's extremely, extremely important. Um, and, and there's different levels of that, you know, human movement is such a fascinating area. And so the, the one that a lot of people think about is, well, I'll get my heart rate up and not, not only burn more calories, but I'll strengthen my heart. And, and that's, of course, absolutely true. Um, you know, um, my father had, and he survived it, but he had a massive heart attack at 51. And um, at that time, they didn't understand these issues very well. Um, a few years later, he was taking things like ginkgo biloba and CoQ10. He had a he had a son in naturopathic medical school. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but he, you know, he worked a very demanding physical job all day, and then would go to an Olympic-sized swimming pool at 4.30 after, every afternoon and, and swim 30 lengths. So he probably survived that heart attack because, you know, he had great collateral circulation and just a lot of muscle in that heart. He played sports a lot as a kid. And so he'd been, you know, he'd been doing that for half a century, and that's probably why he survived. I speculate that if he'd been a bookkeeper or something, he probably wouldn't have made it. So um, there, there's that aspect, but movement does a lot of other things too. There's a lot of, there's a lot of inputs into our nervous system um, when we move that really helps us a lot with stress, really helps us a lot with self-confidence. Our nervous system seems to depend, our brain seems to depend on that um, sensory information that comes to it in order to be adequately activated and adequately stimulated, and a, a lot of that uh, comes a lot of that comes from moving. And um, you know, I tell people, 
uh, obviously, you know, an exercise regimen that challenges you in some way um, is really important to have. But at the very least, you know, get out and move, um, take up something, do some yoga, walk, um, swing your arms, be- because we we actually need that. Our brain is recording that and, and actually st- starts to starts to lose a lot of its integration when we don't have that sensory information from gravity, from contacting the ground, from our joints moving through space. Now, when it comes to when it comes to the heart, I think a lot of good exercise also um, causes our overall circulation to open up into our muscles. And um, the, the heart doesn't just sit there like a mechanical pump by itself. It's connected to a vast network, some of it muscular, that moves an entire fluid system around using kinetic energy. And when we open up our muscles, uh, that system gets that system gets moved and purged. Toxins can come out and go into something called our lymph, which is one way to dispose of it. Uh, tissues are given that life-giving flow of blood, um, kind of like a sponge, you know, getting wet and then wrung out. And so one of the lethal things that we do in our society, and, you know, this is becoming talked about a lot, is just, you know, the amount of sitting, the lack of movement, mm-hmm. uh, that's, you know, my, my former Pilates teacher and therapist some years ago, she had done her master's in movement therapy and spent, I don't know, a month or two with the Maasai people in, um, in Southern Africa. Nice. Even, the, even the septuagenarians would walk 15 miles a day. <laughs> nice. So, Use it or lose it, right? Know. Exactly. So we're living a most unnormal life, I guess, some of us in, in the sense of not moving. But I, I think... I, I think that is extremely important, and I, I just speculate here, but I think we will find out in years to come that lack of movement causes, um, you know, more inflammation and something proatherogenic in the heart. Like you say, use it or lose it. Like if we're not making those demands on our cardiovascular system, it, you know, just starts to act as a repository for cole- repository for cholesterol. So that, you know that will, I think, continue to be seen as a very serious thing. It's, I mean, I love the metaphor with the sponge as well. I mean, that's such a great, you know, being able to fill it and then squeeze it out. And, you know, that's what movement's doing for us. It's incredible uh, uh, to just be able to try to find a place to integrate that into one's day is, is can be pretty powerful. And just as you mentioned, even small bouts of, you know, Martin Cabala's great work down there at McMaster University, even one 20 second bout of, of intensity, you know, going up the flight of stairs or carrying the heavy bags back still has significant benefits. So definitely folks need to find, um, find time for that and build their way up. And, you know, we've talked nutrition, we've talked exercise, you know, what about on the lifestyle side of things? You know, the two that tend to jump out are around, you know, sleep, or, or lack thereof, if, if we're being more specific, or around stress. You know what? You know what do the what roles do these play? Are they more influencing the nutrition and exercise, or in and of themselves, are they contributing to this potential risk as well? Oh, in a big way. You know, sleep is not met typically. The American Sleep Institute estimates, you know, at least here, and it's probably similar in in you know the UK or Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, about six and a half hours of sleep. And that, that was before Netflix. I think they, <laughs> it's going to be certain. going down, I think. 
maybe a six now. And re- really, you know, a lot of a lot of people. I, I think at least a third of the population needs closer to eight. Another third can do okay with seven. So we're sleep deprived, and that, you know, that raises our cortisol levels, which increases inflammation. Um, it gives us less opportunity for that deep sleep when our body repairs itself. And that, you know, repairs, you know, involves growth hormone secretion, which really comes out in the deeper, you don't have to be dreaming, but in the deeper stages of sleep. And so without growth hormone, we can't maintain as much lean body mass. We don't do as good a job, you know, repairing out with the old and with the new. And so that's a great way to age on the outside and the inside is to uh, sleep deplete yourself. You know, and, and, and stress is similar. You know, it, it cranks up our cortisol levels. And um, stress, stress seems to, uh, stress seems to uh, you know, dysregulate our autonomic nervous system. And that, that are, you know, that is the branch of the nervous system that controls all of our organ functions. And it seems like with stress, we get like a lack of coordination and the way our nervous system controls all of those organs, our heart, but our lungs, our digestion, our liver, our, um, our ur- you know, urinary system. And we don't always think of that. We think of stress as causing a pain in the neck or palpitations mm-hmm. or maybe some, maybe some bowel cramps. And, and that's all true. But actually stress can really, you know, everything from atrial fibrillations to, you know, um, you know, decrease in digestion and things like that can can be a big problem. So um, it, it's it's not it's not having a little that's too much of the problem, but that pervasive stress and unfortunately, sadly, a lot of people are going through more of that right now. Not only with the at home or you know um, if they have a, a loved one that's that's struggling with uh, with COVID nineteen, but just you know, just the economic issues right now where people are out of work, that kind of stress where someone can't escape and they can't do anything about it, that is one of the um, the big factors in raising blood pressure, raising cardiovascular disease. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it, how, you know, acute doses of stress, such as the form of exercise, do wonderful things for all these systems. And then when it becomes you know, more chronic and persistent and even low grade, but just always there, it it starts to really unravel our health, the nervous system, you know, as you mentioned, even the impact on, on cognition and emotional health and how that then trickles down into how we eat, move and, and can't sleep and all that. So it's a, it is a pretty intricate web and, you know, I want to respect your time here, Doc, obviously, on this topic of cardiovascular disease and some of these novel biomarkers, if we look at the evolution of research in this area, you know, where do you see things going in the next five or 10 years? I'd like to see more outcome study around this. We, we just uh, had a paper accepted for publication here where we took a group of patients and looked at what therapies they had been given because it was a diverse group of practitioners. And we're really, we're really seeing a big spread uh, in the type of therapies that naturopathic doctors do. So I, I and, and we have plans for this and others are doing it. I'd really like to see what type of things, what type of exercise and diet and some supplements impact 
myeloperoxidase, isoprostanes, and you know we on on our end and, and and see what of all the many many things we can do for people, what brings down that inflammation the most in, in terms of the broader healthcare sense. You know, um, I, I would love to see you know a strongly resourced institution like a Harvard. Um, in collaboration with some of our naturopathic colleges and others, um, do a big study, like um, uh, a 15,000-person study, to really, really see now, you know, what is what is the change in cardiovascular mortality with, you know, knocking down myeloperoxidase vastly for someone in their 40s. A, a lot of that is already out there, though. So I, I, I guess. You know, my my big dream is is to see it more integrated into practice for people. But I think the obstacle is, you know, medicine is has been wildly successful on many levels with this. I mean, cardiovascular death has gone down in the last few years, but they'd like to have one target and hammer away at it. Um, so that 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 would be great to see is more research into naturopathic protocols. And more adoption in the generalized healthcare setting. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like it's a timely uh, subject. With as we mentioned, the population becoming more and more unhealthy and, and overweight. This is going to be uh, you know important for having earlier markers and ways to be able to uh, you know inspire, motivate, and, and build some habits around nutrition and movement and lifestyle. So, really appreciate you carving out some time today, Doc. You know, if people want to keep up with your research and some of the work you're doing, where's the best place for them to do so? Well, uh, a good place to, to be uh, would, would be to contact me um, at uh, F Smith, F as in Fraser, S-M-I-T-H, no dots, all under, under uh, lowercase, at uh, nuhs.edu. Um, I'm involved in several different organizations, but they can feel free to reach out to me uh, also, for your athletes, um, it's good for them to check with someone like yourself. Uh, and I did want to throw that in. Sometimes the um, myeloperoxidase or F2 isoprostanes can be a little bit high because they're using their mitochondria so much. Mm -hmm. Their metabolic furnace is higher. But for those those athletes, eating a good amount of plant foods, um, they're not at higher risk for heart disease. They're going to have super strong hearts you know, well-perfused vasculature. Um, but uh, that's why it's great to talk to someone sometimes because we can be surprised by these tests. Absolutely. And is that something you'd expect to return to baseline if there was an off-season or post-career type thing? Yes. Fantastic. Well, listen, again, really appreciate the time. This is such a fascinating topic and uh, look forward to keeping up with uh, all your tremendous work, Doc. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you enjoyed the content, please subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform to show your support. Also, a special note, this summer we'll be launching an online course centered around the work from my new book, Peak. So if you enjoyed the book and looking for a deeper dive into continuing education in performance nutrition, as well as continuing education units for strength coaches, dietitians, practitioners, then head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org 
and sign up to our pre-sale list where you'll be the first to hear about when we launch this exciting course. Lastly, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, be sure to reach out on social media at Dr. Bubs and fire away with those questions and comments. Thanks for listening, folks, and see you next time. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.